0: All right, we can start making our way back to our seats. And I'm going to have Tim... Come up here and he is going to read our call to worship scripture. Okay. Our uh, call to work. Uh, oh, no, our scripture reading for the evening is the great commission, Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer once again. Father God as we open your word God we ask that you would bless um the reading and the hearing of your word and God that as we expound upon it and um God that you would open our hearts to to receive it rightly um that we would know you better um because of what we read here today um and what we discuss um God that you would use it to conform us to the image of your son Father, we thank you for uh, this opportunity to gather and worship. God, we we pray uh, that your Spirit would move in revival um, among our community. God, that you would uh, awaken those who are are sleepy. Um, that you would bring to life those who are dead. God, and that you would do it through um, the the faithful um, witnessing and testimony. of of the gospel among your people, um, God, that you would do it through, um, the ministries and the preaching of, of your, uh, gospel, uh, believing churches, um, and that God, and all these things that you would stoke to flame, um, got a spirit of, of, of revival in our community, um, and that, uh, many people would come to you, uh, God, we are, um, always, uh, incapable in and of ourselves, um, to come to you, God. We need you to work in our lives. Help us to be faithful. Um, help us be to be the means by which um, you work in our community. Uh, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So again, as we're as we're talking about Trinity Sunday and and the theme of of the Trinity today, I think probably the case is is not probably definitely the Trinity. Is one of the two central um, beliefs, revelations of the Christian faith. There, there are lots of other aspects and lots of other other different things that we might believe that, in some way, uh, other faiths might believe in in a in some way. Even if we uh, understand them very differently than they do, but there would at least be a commonality there. So, for example, something like maybe. Uh, the immortality of the soul, or the concept that there is an actual heaven or an actual hell, that miracles exist, that there are such a thing as angels, that there can that there is a, a sacred text that we look to for for the word of God. Right? We we obviously have specific beliefs about those things, but in some sense we share them with with other faith, faiths. But there are certainly two beliefs that are altogether unlike anything we find in other religions. One would be, I think the idea of justification by faith, by grace through faith in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ, right? So the role that Jesus plays, what he accomplishes vicariously for us, what he does on our behalf and how we come to salvation through that is is unique, okay? Nobody else, there's nothing else in the world that has a, a similar um, idea to those things. And the other one would be the the concept of the Trinity, the oneness and the threeness of the one true God, and so it may, it is counted as one of the defining characteristics of the Christian faith. BB uh, Warfield, a Presbyterian Princeton theologian from from the late eighteen hundreds, said this. He said. Talking about the Trinity, this is the distinguishing characteristic of Christians. And that is as much to say that the doctrine of the Trinity, according to our Lord's own apprehension of it, is the distinctive mark of religion, which he, the, of the religion which he founded. Okay. And so, so I would say those two things are at the center of our faith, a Trinitarian understanding of God and, and the, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, the reality is, is I'm sure you you recognize this. If you've been in the faith very long, you have probably heard all kinds of illustrations to try to explain the Trinity. So you have heard how how God is kind of like uh, water, how he can be, how water can be in you know, a liquid or a gas or or a solid, and yet they all continue to be water. Uh, maybe you've heard somebody say, "Well, well, God is kind of like an egg. How there is a." A shell and a yoke and, and a white to it, and yet um, it's still just one egg. Sometimes the illustration is used that uh the same way a person can be a father and a brother uh and and um and a son, in the same way God takes on these different roles. Okay, now here's the problem. All of those are illustrations that people use, but none of them are very good. All of them leave something out about uh, the Trinity. All of them misrepresent it in some ways. In fact, when you really get right, right down to it, some of them are downright heretical in in the view that they would um, that they would say and and, and uh, depict of, of who God is. Now, I think what we find is that when we are talking about the Trinity, it is better to talk about it. In the terms that uh, this picture actually up here demonstrates All right now, I don't know if any of you have ever noticed that's a picture that hangs over there in uh, in the flex space next door. It, it is a symbol that's called the scutum fide, which means the shield of the Trinity. And so what it is, is it's just a visual depiction of what we know to be true about the Trinity. And that is to say, there is one God, in the picture Deus, in the middle, the Father, yes, God, is God, the Son, is God, the Spirit, I'll go back, the Spirit, is God. However, the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son. All right, that's what that picture demonstrates. And here's the deal. Um, I think that is probably the most helpful way of talking about the Trinity and the most accurate way of talking about the Trinity. When we start trying to make analogies and metaphors and illustrations, we get into to, uh, a bad place pretty quick. What is better to do is to affirm what the Bible teaches us and let those affirmations sit and, and, and bear the weight of our understanding. There is one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Spirit or the Father. The Spirit is not the Father or the Son. Now, again, anytime we have something like a visual depiction, a symbol, or even a a verbal one, a written one, a creed, or anything like that, we should always recognize that that is not authoritative. The scriptures are authoritative to our understanding of these things. Okay. So we always, we don't just take the creed or the symbol at face value. We always come back to what the scriptures say. And the scriptures give us not only those concepts, um, but they also give us the verbiage that we should use when we talk with the grammar, you could say, of what of how we talk about the Trinity. And we should use that grammar because it's the grammar that God has revealed to us. So, for example, again, you've noticed this and maybe you don't pay attention to these things, but in more liberal denominations over the last few years, uh, they have oftentimes started using very creative language to describe the relationship um, Among the Trinity, for example, uh, one denomination said something to the effect, and I may not have these exact right, that it was the Trinity of the mother, the daughter and the holy relationship. So we can see a correlation between that and the father, the son and the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing. We don't have the freedom to be inventive on those things. God has told us how to talk about himself. And, and and God has given us the language of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the question is, is and oftentimes many people ask is they say, well, where do you see the Trinity in the Bible? Where do you see those three statements that we just talked about in the Bible? Well, honestly, we see them all over. We see them in various aspects, in different places, sometimes one idea is emphasized in one place, another idea in another place, but occasionally we see a passage that brings all three of those ideas together, that there is one God, that each person is God, and that each person is not the same as the other person's. We see that those three ideas come together every once in a while in a single passage, and one of those places that we see it is in the passage that Tim read just a few minutes ago, and that's at the Great Commission, and then specifically the baptismal formula that we see in the Great Commission. So the Great Commission there, Matthew chapter 28, starts off, and Jesus came, in verse 18, and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So obviously that passage, that, that section right there is central to to the the mission of the church to our understanding of who we are and what our calling is as the church we are told that we are to make disciples but then it goes on to say and that we are to what to baptize them in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit so from the earliest years of the church they recognized that this was there was a a formula here you could say um, that when we baptize people, there was a verbiage and, and something that we should recognize as we did that. And that is that we were to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One of the earliest documents that we have, extra biblical documents, something that is was written in and through the church but not considered scripture is this document that's called the Didache. And so the Didache was basically like a summary of, of the early teachings of the disciples and things like that, but it confirms this usage, this, this practice that in the early church, as they baptized, they would say, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If if you look around and if you're one of those theology nerds that likes to know um, what other denominations believe, what you'll find is that as you get into uh, certain sects within the Christian world, there are groups that don't baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They only baptize in the name of Jesus. And what you'll also notice is that when that is the case, typically... Those are denominations or sects that have some issues with the Trinity, okay? And so it's not surprising that they would shy away from the language that the Bible gives us because it's, a, it's an aspect of the doctrine that they're rejecting. But there's some cool stuff in this passage, and what we learn about the Trinity is, is cool in this passage. The formula itself is teaching us core truths about the Trinity, and in it, we see those three statements. So let's kind of look at it for a second. You may say, Ash, how do you see those three statements that we made and that that image represents? How do we see those in this passage? Well, let's kind of dig in for a second and see how those things are revealed just in, in, in the brief passage that we see there. So the first thing is this. The first thing is we notice that word. It says, baptize in the name. So what do we notice about that immediately? Name is singular. We do not baptize in the names of God. We baptize in the name of God. There are not three gods that we baptize in each of their names, but we baptize in one name representing one God. Obviously, that's an idea that we see all through the rest of the scripture. We go to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, the Shema passage that in many ways is, is the center of the Jewish faith. says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. First Chronicles 17 tells us, O Lord, there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And that continues obviously on into the New Testament, first Corinthians eight, therefore concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but the one. Or in Ephesians four, six, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So that idea of there being one God is obviously something that, that probably most people would, would there would be no question about that when we read the scriptures. And so the name of God is singular, representing the fact that there is a singular God that we worship. But there's more there because the reality is, is that name that it is referring to is, is probably not just saying any name. It's talking about a particular name. What is that particular name? Well, if if you think about it, the typical way that we talk about God, oftentimes we talk about God and even pray to God using titles as opposed to using his actual name. When you call out to God or pray to God and you say father or king or creator or Lord or judge, the reality is, is those aren't exactly names of God. Those are titles. Those are, are uh, uh, aspects of his, of his relationship with us. But God does have a name. And that name is unique. And it is singular. And it is the name that we have enunciated. We, we honestly, in some ways, we are not even positive how it was verbalized. But it is the word, the name Yahweh. That is the personal name of God. It's the name that God revealed to Moses at Mount Sinai. Four Hebrew letters. In English, Y-H-W-H, which we call the Tetragrammaton. All right, the four-letter name. This name, which represents God's self-existence, his unchangeableness, his simplicity, We see it at the burning bush. He is the fire that doesn't go out, the fire that doesn't need a source of fuel. He is almost like the eternally uh, existent one. Or a direct translation of his name, as far as we can tell, basically, is that I am what I am or God is what he is. He will be what he will be. And and while some of those titles that we use for him, like God or Lord, are sometimes used of other entities in the universe, false gods, sometimes even humans are given the title of Lord or God, little g, the name Yahweh is not used of anybody else. Only God is called Yahweh, the great I am. Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That picture of the singularity of who God is, holy, set apart, sanctified, distinct from everything else in existence. And he has one name because there is one God, Yahweh. Now, here's an interesting thing that happens, though, in the passage. It says that we are to baptize, though, in the name of the singular name that we are to baptize in. The name that is above every name, the name that is only applied to God, is the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The one name is the name of the Father. The one name is the name of the Son. And the one name is the name of the Spirit. Now, this is an incredible statement especially if you understand the way the Bible talks about the name of God and his singularity. We are told in several places that, that God doesn't share his glory with anyone. And that glory, that transcendent glory is expressed nowhere more clearly than in his name, the, the singularity and the uniqueness of his name. That name encompasses him in, in, as, as far as we can understand it. And he says, I don't share my glory with anybody. I don't share my name with anybody. And yet here in Matthew, he is implying that the name is in fact shared. That it is shared between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Again, that is to say that the Father is identified as Yahweh. And the Son is identified as Yahweh. And the Spirit is identified as Yahweh. And this is the point that the Scriptures talk about the Son and the Spirit in ways that we would have never thought they should have in the Old Testament. Unless Jesus and the Spirit are, in fact, God, as much as the Father is God. So first Corinthians eight says, yet for us, there is one God, the father from whom all things and f- f- from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord, Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. There's a conflation of the language there, identifying the, the, the two persons with each other. Acts 5 talks about this idea where you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They come and they have this money that they have um, uh, made from selling a piece of property. And they are pretending to give all of the proceeds of that sale to, to the church. But they want to keep some back from themselves and, and they play this little game. And what it says is at the beginning, it says they have lied to the Holy Spirit About the the donation. But then in like two verses later, it says, you have not lied to man, but to God. Again, connecting the idea that when we say you have lied to the Holy Spirit, it is equivalent to saying you are, you have lied to God because the Holy Spirit is God. Second Corinthians, Corinthians three, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the spirit And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. The father is glorious and referred to as God. The son is glorious and referred to as God. The spirit is glorious and referred to as God. Each bears the name, the singular name of God. And yet, what do we see in the context of this passage? The third thing that we see, we see that there is distinction between those three. While all three are called by the name of God, there is distinction between the persons of God. And I know that sounds weird, the persons of God. You say, don't you mean like the people or... That sounds like weird English to say, the persons of the Trinity. And yet that's the typical way that we talk about the three persons of the Trinity. The passage says we are baptized into a singular name that can be applied to not just one, but to three distinct persons. The distinction is seen here, again, in the baptismal formula, but the distinction is not just stated, but it's demonstrated even in another baptismal scene that we find further back in the Gospel of Matthew. And that's in Jesus' own baptism in Matthew chapter 3. We probably are familiar with the story. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The son is baptized. The spirit descends and it is the father who speaks. You might say, well, how do we know that's the father who is speaking? Well, we know because he refers to Jesus as the son. You can't have a father Or you can't have a son if the person speaking is not the father of that person. The distinction between the persons is emphasized in that passage. The passage doesn't say the one true God was baptized. And the one true God descended. And the one true God said, this is my one true God in whom I, the one true God, am well pleased. Even though that would be accurate. He could have said that, but that was not the emphasis of that revelation. The revelation there was to show us there is distinction between the person of the Father, the person of the Son, and the person of the Holy Spirit. And so again, we could say the Father did not descend in that story, nor was he baptized. The Spirit was not the one that spoke, nor was he baptized. And the son did not descend, nor did he say, this is my beloved son, but he was the one who was baptized. Here's a cool insight in these things. Notice what distinguishes the persons between each other, what distinguishes the father from the son, from the Holy Spirit, is their relationship with each other, not their relationship with us. Here's what I mean by that. And it's it's a cool insight into the way we think and understand and talk about God. We find that as we look at God's relationship to us, oftentimes the titles of who God is are more central. When God relates to us, he is creator. He is redeemer. He is Lord. We talk about that language. And all of those titles could actually be applied to each of the persons. Have you ever thought about that? There's a sense in which, obviously, the Father is creator, but there's a sense in which the Son is creator, too, and the Spirit is creator. The Father is Lord, and the Son is Lord, and the Spirit is Lord. The Father redeems us, and the Son redeems us, and the Spirit redeems us. And so when we're talking about the roles of God, it, it oftentimes is the case that we can apply any of those roles to any person of the Trinity. And yet, when God is showing us the relationship that he has within the Trinity, the language shifts to this language of the Father who begets the Son and from whom the Spirit proceeds. We get a glimpse into the inter-Trinitarian relationship of God a glimpse into how God exists within himself. And as probably we're all aware, because we've had conversations with people who say, I don't know about this old Christianity thing because I don't get the Trinity. That's not something that would have been obvious to us if we had not been told it by God. If we had just looked around at the universe around us, if we had looked at the beauty of creation, if we had looked at those things, there's certain things that we can know about God. We can know he's creative. We can know he's powerful. We can know he's orderly. We can probably say that he's wise. But you know what we wouldn't be able to say? We wouldn't be able to say he is father, he is son, and he is Holy Spirit. There would be no way we would know that unless God had decided to reveal that aspect of his being to us. And he wasn't obligated to show us that. He 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 was much more veiled in the Old Testament, although in the Old Testament he reveals it too, but it's much more veiled than it is when we get to the New Testament. And yet as a function of his love, his grace, his desire to show himself to his people, he has revealed it, that we might know him better and understand him more fully and understand him more truly. And honestly, that's one of the main reasons why the Trinity matters, because again, it's it's one of those doctrines that sometimes for many of us feels so nebulous that we just sort of go, yeah, 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 I believe it, but I'm not going to think about it, and if I've got a buddy who I'm trying to share the faith with, and I'm going to explain the Trinity to him as best I can, and if he doesn't believe it, man, we're just going to move on past that to something else, because I don't want to get bogged down in this sort of Uh, This nebulous, hypothetical kind of thing. But it's none of that. It's not nebulous and it's not hypothetical. It's central to our faith. Because knowing God truly is the whole purpose of our existence. That's why you're here. Okay, it is not something that is secondary. Knowing God truly is the reason you exist. There's a quote that I come back to over and over again by, by the pastor, preacher, theologian, A.W. Tozer. And he says, what comes into your, our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's an interesting thing, probably not something that most of us would have said. What's the most important thing about you? And you would have gone through several things. Tozer says, the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about who God is. God wants to be known truly, okay? That makes sense because knowing God has content. It's, it's as as an analogy, it'd be like knowing your spouse, okay? You can sit there and talk about how much you love your spouse. Do you love your wife? Do you love your husband? Oh, I love him. I love him so much. Well, tell me about him. I just love him. Love him so much. They're so great. Yeah, but what do they like? I mean, I love them. I just love them. God has content. He is, has a character. He is like something and he wants us to know him truly. And the trinity sits at the very center of that. But here's maybe as important and, 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 and certainly connected. We need to understand the trinity because it's at the heart of the gospel. All right. That's why I think it's shared in the baptismal formula when we baptize someone as a picture of them entering into the people of God as we, as they go under the water and, and the picture is that they are dying with Christ and being cleansed of sin, that they are raising to newness of life um, in, in correlation with Jesus resurrection. It's in that moment that we're supposed to say in the name of the father, the son and the Holy spirit. Again, why? I think because of this distinct role that each person plays in our salvation. Again, it would be right to just say God redeems us, God saves us. And yet we know that each person has played a unique role. The father has elected and ordained us. The son has accomplished our salvation through the cross and his resurrection. The Spirit has quickened us and awakened us and applied that salvation to our lives. We are regenerated. We talked about that in youth group this last week, about understanding that it is God who takes the heart of stone out and puts a heart, a living heart, inside us. He takes a dead person spiritually and makes them alive. That's what the Spirit does. And so this Trinity sits at the very heart of the gospel. And of our salvation. Now, th- that doesn't mean that we have to to um, lead with the Trinity, maybe, in every single evangelistic opportunity. Okay, there's, a, there's a, a theologian named Fred Sanders, and he makes a quip where he says, you don't have to talk to people about the faith and say, God loves you and has a wonderful Trinity for you to understand. Okay, that's not probably the way that we would go about it. But here's the deal. We do want them to have a, a wonderful trinity that they understand, right? We want them to come to an understanding of these things. It may not be the first thing that we talk about, it may not be the way that we lead, but there's a sense in which there's no way we cannot lead with it because we immediately begin to talk as we share the gospel with people about the role of the father, the role of the son, the role of the spirit in these things. And so, The Trinity is important because it's, it's connected so intimately to not only our own salvation, but to the message of salvation that we are called to take to the world. In all cases, we want to grow in our understanding of it. And yet, sometimes the most basic way of talking about it is the most useful and helpful and accurate and true way of talking about it. There is one God. The father is God. The son is God. The spirit is God. The father is not the son. The son is not the spirit. The spirit is not the father. And standing on that foundation, then we move forward into deeper and deeper levels of understanding who God is. So what I want to do is, is I know that's not exactly a uh, come to Jesus kind of of, of message. Um, and yet, just like I said, the Trinity sits at the center of our salvation. And so what I want to do is just for us to maybe go to the Lord in a time of prayer. Um, maybe it's a time for you to say, God, I have, I have thought about you. I have described you to people in a way that is inaccurate. I have tried to explain your nature, and by in doing so, I've actually presented you wrongly. Maybe that's something you should confess. Or maybe this is just a time where you say, God, I just want to revel in the beauty and the glory of the way that you have revealed yourself to us and ask that you would continue to show me your goodness and your graciousness and your nature, your essence, who you are more clearly every single day. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask the Lord to just impress these things on our hearts and help us to live in light of them. God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God, you have revealed to us your personal name so that your people can know it. And so uh, we call on the name of Yahweh. We call on your name, God, that you would fill us with an understanding of your nature, of your character. Of your personhood, God, that we would glory in how you have worked in our lives as father, as son, as Holy Spirit. God, and that we would give proper worship in everything as we worship Jesus, as we worship God, the Father, as we worship Holy Spirit.
1: God, that we would know you
0: truly. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you for showing us who you were when, God, we did not deserve it. We were not owed it in any way. And yet, because of your great love, your great condescension to us, you have shown us an aspect of your character that we would have and your being that we would have never seen. God, thank you for your love towards us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus name. Amen.
1: Please stand and sing the closing song. Thank mm-hmm. you. And fast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this, I owe. follow Jesus for he has said that he
0: for for your benefit um many of you are familiar with the uh the little book the lighting in the trinity by michael reeves we use that as a good little book study one one uh, advent uh in the last few years but that's a great book um if you would like to just sort of grow in your understanding of of the trinity and and um sort of its historical progression and different aspects of it and stuff and so um Uh, It's a great book, Michael Reeves, Delighting in the Trinity. There's another one um, that is a newer book um, by a guy named Scott Swain, um, and it is a, a little green book. It's part of a larger series on little books on theological topics. Um, but I think it's just called, uh, the Trinity and introduction to the doctrine or, or something to that effect, but it's got a specific study on the passage that we looked on it, at tonight, um, where it talks about, um, uh, the great commission and, and the baptismal formula that we see there in, in that passage. So if you just were like, man, I want to dig into the Trinity right now, that would be a great little resource, um, to get to, um, cool. Hope you have a great week. Good to see everybody. Um, hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.